wants to give you a bigger vision of himself because there's an end goal that he has in mind for you and for your life. And so he mentions these seven churches. He lists them by name in the last half of John chapter 1, or uh, uh, Revelation chapter 1. And, and these are seven letters to seven influential churches. These are historical sites. They actually existed at the time. And what's interesting is now in chapters 2 and 3, we're going to see Jesus writing seven letters to these seven churches. So starting with the book of Romans in the New Testament, they're all letters, right? These are letters that Paul wrote, um, that Peter wrote, that John wrote, that James wrote to these churches. They're letters that have been written. And so for these two chapters, this is going to feel very much like the major part of the New Testament. These letters that now, they are not being penned by a man, but being penned by Jesus himself. And he's got specific things that he wants to say to these seven churches. Now, for the most part, the letters are going to kind of flow like this. Um, there will be a commendation. There will be a criticism. There will be some correction. And then there will be a challenge. And so that is not uh, for all seven of the letters. There's a little bit of variation in a couple of them. But for the most part, it'll follow that form. We will see it certainly in this letter today. And so Ephesus goes first. And it goes first for a couple of reasons. First, I showed you a map last week. Geographically, it's about 40 to 50 miles from where John is living. He's living in exile, kind of in slavery. Imagine Alcatraz, right? He's off the coast of modern-day Ephesus, uh, or, or Ephesus right there. It's 40 to 50 miles off the coast in the Aegean Sea. So if you were going to send a message uh, to the churches you would stop there first. It would have been the first stop on the trade route. But it's even bigger than that. Ephesus was the most influential city in Asia at the time. Uh, it was known as the supreme metropolis of Asia. Oh, right? I mean, that's a big deal. Right? Y'all are really quiet this morning. Um, uh, very Roman in its influence. Um, religiously, it was pluralistic, meaning that they worshipped many gods. Specifically, they worshipped the goddess Diana. Now, the goddess Diana, there was a temple to Diana in Ephesus that was known as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So it was a big temple, and Diana was a sex fertility goddess, meaning that people that worshipped her um, were living in a lot of sexual immorality. Um, there was prostitution taking place going out of that temple. And so when you think about Ephesus, just think about there's a lot uh, of debauchery and compromise going on in Ephesus. So here, this fledgling church at this point is probably about 30 years old in this city living among people that were far, far, far from God. Probably not the place that would be ideal for you to have a shop set up if you didn't want to be influenced in the wrong way. So the church was founded by Paul, Priscilla, and Aquila. If you read Acts chapter 18 and 19, you can get an account of what was going on. Maybe you want to do that this week to kind of understand. Paul knew the significance of this city. He lived there for about two years. And so he was, he was intimately acquainted with them so much that while in prison in Rome, he wrote a letter to the church at Ephesus. We know it as the book of Ephesians. We studied that earlier this year. And so 
Think about that. He wrote this letter in the 60s, okay? So this is not the 60s that we know, right? This wasn't the, the you know, the free love decade. Um, this is much earlier than that, okay? So that happens in the 60s, and now this is the 90s, okay? So this is a time when uh, John is the last living apostle, likely. All the other ones had been killed for the sake of Jesus, and he's here living in exile. And Jesus knew exactly how much influence Ephesus had. And so this is an important letter. So anytime that we read the Bible, we want to try to find ourselves in the story, right? And so this is not only a historical letter to the church at Ephesus, but again, it's to you and me today. So let's see what he might want to say to us. Let's start with verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. If you have not been with us for the last couple of weeks, um, you're like, okay, what is that imagery? Well, if you look back up at the last couple of verses in Revelation 1, he tells us what the stars and the lampstands represent. The seven stars are the seven angels or messengers to the seven churches. The seven lampstands represent the seven churches, okay? So, mystery solved, okay? So, here, the, uh, the seven stars, I love what he says here. He's holding the seven stars in his right hand. So, these are the messengers that are going to the church. Here's what I want you to see this morning. Jesus holds the church in his hand. Jesus is in complete control. So think about this for a minute. We talked about it last week. But when Jesus wanted to get the word out, when he wanted to reveal himself to that generation, where did he go? He went to the local church. It was his heart and his goal to tell John who would tell the, uh, or he, he told the angel who would speak to John, and then the word would get out to the local church. The local church is still the hope of the world, y'all. So you think about it. In our culture today, um, when people think about church, um, it, it's, it's, it's really kind of stained, right? It doesn't mean today what it meant 40, 50 years ago. Um, the church is now known for um, its irrelevance in a lot of ways. Um, it's known for being very judgmental, very harsh, very disconnected. And so when people think about the church today, they don't have great thoughts about the church. But know this, even though the culture has given up on the church, Jesus has not. And he still holds the church in his hands. In fact, if you look in John chapter 10, he's talking about the sheep and the shepherd. And he says, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. Listen, no one will snatch them out of my hand. So know this, you as an individual, if you have said yes to Jesus, if you have a relationship with Jesus, know this, no one can snatch you out of the hand of the Father. You need to hear that this morning. Because, man, for a lot of you, um, you make mistakes, right? You make mistakes on the daily. Join the club. We all do, right? We are all sinners. And Jesus didn't come to just rid us of our sin. He came to forgive us of our sin past, present, and future. And so in Jesus, it doesn't mean we no longer sin. It just means that sin no longer has a hold on our life, that we don't have to continue sinning, right? 
So you think about this. When, when uh, it says that he's holding you in his hands, I think about my marriage with Yvonne. We've been married for 30 years, and uh, we fight sometimes. <gasps> yeah, I mean, we don't always get along. Um, I, I know that you probably think that we, because we live in, you know, marital bliss, but we don't always get along. Here's the thing. Every time we have a fight, we don't have to make an appointment at the courthouse to go get remarried. Did y'all know that? We were married for 30 years, one time. One time we stood at an altar and said yes, and we fight, and we lose fellowship with each other, but you know what we don't lose? Relationship. She's been my wife for 30 years, and even though, um, trust me, I've given her plenty of reasons to go uh, no more, uh, today we're still married. Yeah, come on. Yeah. For those of you that aren't clapping, have you seen her? I mean, it's good stuff, all right? So, so seriously, so we think about that. Man, uh, we, we may lose fellowship, but we don't lose relationship, and that is a picture of the Father. He holds the church in his hand. He holds you in his hand, so he's in full control. But not only is he in full control, he is fully engaged. It says that he walks where? Among the seven golden lampstands. He's walking among the church. He is not this 30,000 foot God up in heaven in the throne room looking down going, tisk, tisk, tisk. I can't believe that you're doing what you're doing. For a lot of us, that is our view of Jesus. That Jesus is disconnected. That Jesus is angry with you. That Jesus is disappointed. That he's ashamed of you. When in reality, he is walking among you today. So we see that he is not only in full control, he's fully engaged. And get this, he deeply cares about the culture and mission of the church. So we had an elders retreat this weekend, and there were nine of us in the room, and we spent a lot of time in prayer. We spent a lot of time thinking and planning about the future. But here's what I want you to know. Um, I am not the head of restoration. I'm not. I'm the loudest mouth in the room, but I am not the head of restoration. Jesus is. Jesus sets the pace for the church. And, and I told second service here, here's the deal. The day that you feel like that, that, that I am taking over as the head of the church, you should leave immediately, right? I mean, just go out the back door or at least shoot me an email and let's have a conversation, right? I mean, at the end of the day, Jesus is the head of the church, not Greg. This is his deal. And here's what I know. He cares deeply about the mission and the culture of the church. And so he starts with giving a progress report, right? A commendation. And so um, y'all are familiar with the five love languages? So I'm a words of affirmation guy. Love affirmation, right? So I, I just, I, I just I, man, I thrive on it. I told Yvonne recently, hey, when I walk off stage, all I want to hear is, hey, you did a great job. And, and her response was, what if I don't think you did a great job? <laughs> yeah ouch, and <laughs> lie to me, right? So, so, so here's the deal, man. We, we just, I, I, I love affirmation, and so, so feed me, feed me, feed me. And so we're, we're all like that, right? We love it when we feel like we're doing a good job. And so imagine that you are part of the church at Ephesus, and this letter comes, 
by messenger, and you open it up, and it's a letter from Jesus to you. And here's what he says. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people and that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. So he commends them for three things, for their deeds, for their dedication, and for their doctrine, right? So, man, if, if, if you're an Ephesian sitting in there, Jesus is speaking directly to you. He could have gone to any church first. He came to yours, right? So you're like, I'm a part of the right church. And then you feel him saying, listen, your deeds, what does he say? He says, listen, I know you. You do good things. On the surface, holiness mattered to the church at Ephesus. They weren't taking their cues from the culture, so they're not just living down to some lower standard. Man, they are doing the right things. Their dedication. He said, man, you work hard. He uses the word perseverance. Man, they've got no quit in them. They endured hardships. And he said they didn't grow weary. He also said, man, they're dedicated. They don't tolerate evil. They're standing strong in a godless culture. That's good news, right? So what he's saying, too, is, man, the temple of Diana, everybody's having sex with everybody, but you know who isn't? The Ephesians. That they are standing strong in a godless culture. That's good news, right? It reminds me of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember those guys? Remember Daniel chapter 3? Some of you, the only recollection you have of that is VeggieTales, Shad, Rad, and Benny, okay? So now we're all up to speed. Um, and, and remember, these guys, the, the, they're, they're standing in a countercultural way. The king builds this nine-foot-tall idol, and he says, listen, when the music plays, bow down and worship this graven image. And what did they do? They said, no, I won't bow. Where did they end up? in a furnace turned up 10 times hotter than it had ever been. And it says that the king looked in, and they are walking around in the fire. And we sing this song other, uh, all the time. There's another in the fire. There was a fourth in the fire walking around, and he looked like a son of God. Jesus was in the fire with them, right? And so they were dedicated. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, they were going to be faithful to the death. And that's a picture of this dedication here. But not only that, he said, man, your doctrine is spot on, right? You, you knew what you believed. You can spot a phony. You're calling out false doctrine, which, by the way, this was the first cancel culture, right? That, that man, this is big in the church today, by the way, um, that, that, man, we're great at calling out everybody else that's wrong, Right? We're going to be so shocked when we get to heaven. But uh, um, you, you think about that. Very quick to call out the false teachers. In fact, Jesus commends them in verse 6. He says, hey, you hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I hate too. And we don't know anything else about the Nicolaitans except in verse 15 in the next letter that we'll see next week. He says, hey, they practice a lot of the things that Balaam worships. 
which was idolatry and sexual immorality. And so we don't know a lot about the Nicolaitans, not good guys. Jesus hated their practices, and he says, you hate them at well, as well. So think about this. You're the church at Ephesus. You're hearing this for the first time. You're sitting up a little taller, and you're like, yay me, right? I go to the right church. Here's the problem. When you look at those three things, deeds, dedication, doctrine, guess what you don't need to accomplish those? Jesus. Do you realize that you can do all the right things for the wrong reasons? That, that, that you can be motivated by being seen and so you do the right things so that you can be noticed? Do you recognize that, that you can be dedicated, that you can persevere? I mean, this is the American way, y'all. Think about the last six months. We have been locked up. Um, some of you, you've lost your jobs or you're a business owner and you've, you've had to really endure a very hard time. And for all of us, man, we're John waning this pandemic, right? Pull yourselves up by your bootstraps. It's the American way. Do you realize that you can persevere without Jesus? You just kind of work really hard. Do you recognize that in the middle of having sound doctrine that you begin to pursue an intellectual understanding of God and you can miss Jesus in the process? Do you know that's possible? That you can know a lot about Jesus and miss him altogether? It happens every day. And so think about this. So the Jews, there was a lot of Jewish influence in the early church. So think about the Jewish influence in this church. Pre-Jesus, who did the Jews follow? The Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day. Right? And so the Pharisees, who, who were really kind of the, the moral, mosaic, ceremonial law, they were the ones that were setting the pace, and the Jews were following their lead. They were known as the pious, holy ones of the day. Who was Jesus at odds with throughout the Gospels? The Pharisees. So when you think about this, he's looking at the church at Ephesus, and he's like, guys, you look really good on the outside. Things, are, things really seem to be going well. But I'm seeing something that concerns me. So what are some of the things he said about the Pharisees? It's interesting. In Matthew 23, verses 13 through 33, I'm not going to read it. You can go back and look at it later. But he said some really interesting things about the Pharisees. Here are a few things he said. You are sons of hell. <laughs> okay. Um, you're blind guides, you're filthy cups, you're whitewashed tombs, you're hypocrites. That word hypocrite, the Greek is Hippocrates, which were the actors of the day. So you're acting, you're faking it. You're, brood, you're a brood of vipers, you're descendants of murderers. Hmm. So these were the leaders that the Jews had been emulating for years and years and years and years. And so... When Jesus begins to take a back seat, maybe some of this was coming to the forefront. Is it any wonder, by the way, why the Pharisees crucified Jesus? <laughs> I mean, he said some pretty harsh things about them, right? 
So here's what I want you to realize. The law without love is legalism. The law without love is legalism, meaning this, man, here's the thing. You can follow the letter of the law. You can be good enough and do good things. You can be dedicated to the things that are right. You can even have an intellectual understanding. But if you don't love, it don't mean squat. Paul talked about it in 1 Corinthians 13. What did he say? If you don't have love, you are a resounding gog or a clanging cymbal. What are those? They're annoying. And they're dead. That the law without love is literally worthless. So why do I think that this is what Jesus was thinking? Because he says it in verse 4. In verse 4, he's like, hey man, deeds, dedication, doctrine, killing it. But verse 4, yet I hold this thing against you. Okay, so when Jesus says that to you, it takes you back, right? Uh Uh-oh. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Another version says, you've lost your first love. So what's he saying? He's like, man, guys, you do all the right things. You know all the right things. But here's my indictment on you. You don't love me. You don't love me. I am no longer the head of your church. Whatever whatever you've given yourself to, it's not me. You think about the greatest commandment. What is the greatest commandment? In Matthew 22, someone asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as you love yourself. What are the two things? We've got to love God and love people. And when Jesus is looking at the church at Ephesus, he's saying, man, you've lost your mission. You've lost your way. You're doing all the right things. You look great on the outside, but this church was operating void of love. They were battle-weary. And here's what happens. When, When Jesus gets lost in the equation, here's what often happens. You probably start living defensively, protecting your own, You become inward focused, right? Now you're worried about all the scary things out there, so I gotta huddle up in here, which flies in the face of the mission that God has called us to. They had forgotten Jesus. And Paul says something had changed in the relationship. Something's not right. So right out of high school, the summer after graduating from high school, I you know, I dated some in high school, but I use that term loosely. I just went out with a lot of people once, you know. And so, um, so for the first time, I met this girl. Her name was Deborah, and I was certain quickly that she was the one. I was 18 years old. We were going to get married and spend the rest of our life together. And I, I, just, I just knew it. And so for three months, we were inseparable. We spent every day together. I mean, we were just, you know, all together all the time. And I was just sure she's the one. No doubt in my mind. The night before we left for college, I went to North Texas State University. It became University of North Texas. So think about that. North, it was North Texas State when I started, UNT when I left. That represents how long I was there. And, and, and then she went to A&M. Oh, wow. That was, yeah. I heard a, 
Aggie proud, <laughs> you know. So, so she, she was going to A&M. The night before we left, uh, she sat down with me and said, hey, my parents says that we should date other people. Um, just we've gotten, she, they feel like we've gotten a little too close. We should separate a little. I'm like, what? No, we're getting married. This is, this is a done deal. But I didn't have any choice in the matter because she went down there and started dating somebody else. But we were still kind of seeing each other. I got to North Texas and realized, oh, this is actually a good deal. Target-rich environment. So I start back on kind of the dating trail. And in October, I went to A&M for the weekend to see her. And I'm down there, and uh, we're together and, um, you know, doing the things that we would have done. We went out to eat. We're hanging out, and things seemed good. But you know what I was thinking? Huh, I'm not feeling it like I did, you know? couple of months of separation and some of the luster had worn off and I didn't feel like, you know, well, maybe she's not the one I'm going to marry. By the time Christmas rolls around, we're both home. She wants to get back to, she tells me, uh, we went to a movie and on our way home, she said, hey, I've been thinking, I think we need to see just each other. And I'm like, eh, maybe. And so over Christmas, she wants to see me every day. I'm really not into it anymore. And so before Christmas break ended, I made her break up with me, right? Because I want to feel better about myself. And so, um, but Deborah, if you're listening to this, you did break up with me. And so I, I, I think about that. What happened? Man, I was convinced we were going to spend the rest of our lives together. But you know what? That's not how it worked out. Something changed. And the love that was so strong, so all-encompassing at one point, went away. Think about your life spiritually. Have you been in a place where you were white, hot, passionate for Jesus? Right? That, woo! I think about our church at the beginning of this year. It seems like three years ago. In January of this year, um, we did a 21-day fast. The church was open every morning at 6 and every day at noon, and people are flocking here. And, and, and the prayer culture was just amazing. And people are having these incredible experiences with Jesus. And you could just see uh, Jesus growing all over the church. And it was so incredible. But I wonder, is it that same fervency today? So here's how I would define Ephesus. They were living for Jesus, Right? And we hear that, and we're like, living for Jesus. Have you ever said that? I'm living for Jesus? And that sounds like a good thing. Until you think about the alternative, living from Jesus. You see, living for Jesus means that there's a lot of things that I'm doing, that, that my deeds or my works may look good. Is it possible that you could do the right things for the wrong reasons? We live for Jesus and maybe we persevere, or our, our dedication seems really strong, but we're doing it in the name of living for Jesus. Or we're living under this uh, blanket of sound doctrine for Jesus. And here's what living for Jesus produces in the culture of the church. It can often produce the fruit of self-righteousness, of overzealousness, of striving, of defensiveness, of downright aggressiveness. Here's what else it can produce. Exhaustion. 
Do you realize that there are good things that you could be doing right now and you just find yourself exhausted? And God looks at you and says, the reason you're exhausted is because I've never called you to do those things. But in the name of living for Jesus, we can make a list of things that seem like really good things and we can run after them with our whole heart. Here's the problem. If Jesus hasn't called you to it, it will not be successful and it will exhaust you in the process. You know what else happens when we're living for Jesus? It leads to hiding and secrets because here's the thing. When you're not living from a center of Jesus, when you're just living for him, you know what you do? You hide your sin. You live in secrets. And so you think you're getting away with something or you don't want anybody to see that you're actually really spiraling out of control. But when you live for Jesus, you're living for perception and you want everybody to see you as this uh, bastion of Christianity. When in reality, all is not right. See, living for Jesus, I believe, is one of the greatest schemes of the enemy. Then in the absence of an intimate relationship with Jesus, you replace it with deeds, with dedication, with doctrine. You know where it leads? There's another D word. Death. That's good news, right? <laughs> but here's the difference. Living for to living from. When you are living from Jesus, it means that you are receiving all the love that he wants to give you, that you're putting yourself in the flow of Jesus, and you're saying, hey, Jesus, there are things that you want to do in me and through me, and so I'm going to sit, and I'm going to receive from you. You are going to set the agenda for my day. You are going to set the agenda for my week. You are going to set the agenda for our church, and I'm not moving until you say go. And guess what else? It produces fruit as well. Paul talks about it in the book of Galatians, chapter 5, verse 22 and 23. The, the kind uh, of, of fruit, the characteristics that Jesus produces in our lives are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Not an exhaustive list, but it's a good list. But here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that you put Galatians 5, and 23 up on the mirror in your bathroom and then check off every act that you do that fits that description every day. Because that's what a lot of us do. We're just trying to be good enough, right? So I need to be more loving today. I need to be more gentle today, more joyful today. And those are great things to aspire to. But here's, here's the way that you can 100% accomplish those things. Get in the secret place with Jesus. He's going to produce those things in you. You don't have to do it on your own. You were never meant to. And this is the indictment on the church at Ephesus. You're doing all these things, but you don't love me. And if you don't love me, I don't even know what you're doing. I don't even understand. In many ways, verse 4 is the Sermon on the Mount in a sentence. When Jesus uh, starts his public ministry in Matthews 5, 6, and 7, he stands on a hillside and, and he talks to these, these Jewish people that were living under the oppression and slavery that was coming from the law at the hands of the Pharisees. 
And so he begins to speak to them. And at one point he says, hey, listen, you've heard it said this, but I say this. He starts in Matthew 5 around verse 21. He says, hey, you've heard it said don't commit adultery. I tell you that if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. Wait, what? And so it's possible that you could physically stay pure, and yet in the eyes of Jesus, he sees you as an adulterer. That seems jacked up, y'all, right? Some of you right now are like, well, that's not fair. You've heard it said don't commit murder. I say if you've got anger in your heart towards somebody, you've committed murder already. So now we've got a bunch of murderers and adulterers in the room, right? You've heard it said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. I say to you, love those that oppose you. Bless those that persecute you. Love your enemies. What? Jesus, what are you talking about? You've heard it said, but I say to you. He gets into chapter 6. He's like, hey, listen. When you give, don't be like the hypocrites, like the actors. He's talking about the Pharisees who throw the coins in the coffer that it makes a bunch of noise so everyone knows that you're giving. He says, no, in fact, don't let your... Left hand, know what your right hand's doing. Then he says, when you pray, don't pray these flowery prayers on the street corner. Where does he say to go? Into the secret place. What's he saying? This is between you and me, not between you and everybody else. Then he says, hey, when you fast, don't look all gaunt. Don't fast and then go to a restaurant this afternoon when they say, hey, can I take your order? Can I just get some broth? I'm fasting. Right? Some of you are like, oh, that makes sense. All right. The, the, the point is this. When you look at what Jesus was saying throughout the Sermon on the Mount, he's saying, listen, this is not about doing the right things. It's not about following the letter of the law. It is about your heart and the motivation of your life. Because the right things with the wrong motives is dead. The right dedication that, that is, is, is set on you and not Jesus is dead. The right doctrine that's leveled at people is dead. What he's saying is that your motivation will drive your mobilization. Meaning this. If your motivation is you, you may be mobilized to go in a lot of places that have nothing to do with God's plan for your life. If your motivation comes from a place of Jesus, he will mobilize you to the exact location that you're supposed to be. If you don't love Jesus, you won't love others, <laughs> okay? If you're not receiving from Jesus, you won't love others the way they need to be loved. You may love others the way that you want to love them, which will be convenient for you, but Jesus changes all of that. So, so basically, Jesus is showing the Ephesians that there is a missing ingredient in their church. Him. Him, that he has been replaced as the head of the church. Deeds are no substitute for devotion. Labor is no substitute for love. And purity is no substitute for passion. So let me just speak again to this whole idea of the cancel culture that we have in our church today. 
Man, it saddens me that we have pastors that stand on stages and publicly call out other pastors. And they do it in the name of calling out false doctrine. And I'm like, hey, if you've got that much stroke and that much influence, you need to pick up the phone and call them. And, and, and we have grown very comfortable with calling people out. And we do it because we go, well, throughout the New Testament, man, they're talking about false teachers. We need to call out false teachers. Hey, we need to know our doctrine. And we need to live soundly in it. And we need to be able to spot the falsity when it happens. But here's what I would say. Romans 2, 4. Paul says to the Romans, it is God's kindness that leads to repentance. God's kindness. Not his harsh judgment. I think we got to leave people to God and let him work it out. But know this. You came to Jesus not because of harsh judgment. And if you did, may, maybe, I, I grew up in a church where literally they wanted to scare the hell out of me so that I would follow Jesus, so that I wouldn't go to hell, that I would spend eternity in heaven. But you know what? That only went so far for me. It wasn't until my life fell apart that Jesus truly became real to me. And, and the real Jesus that I came in contact with did not shame me. He loved me. And it was his kindness that led me into repentance. And so here's the thing. If it's good enough for God, maybe it should be good enough for us. But know this. Without Jesus in the center of what you're doing, you will not level love at people. You will level judgment. So he moves on from this criticism of them to correction. We're almost done. Verse 5. He says, consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. So he says four things here. In another version, he says, remember the heights from which you've fallen. So he's saying, hey, you've got to remember where you were at one point, right? Because this is an influential city, and there was a time when the Ephesians were really uh, living from a place of Jesus. And over time, something has happened. And he says, remember the height from which, which you've fallen. For you, can you remember a time when you were white hot, passionately following Jesus? Do you remember that time? Maybe it was right after you trusted him with your life and you couldn't quit talking about it. So we were uh, driving to Market Street last night, uh, me and Yvonne, and Abby was home for the weekend, and so we were headed that way. Abby's in the back seat, and she's talking about the fact that um, she's spending a lot of time right now in the Word, and she said, I'm learning, she said, I'm learning I'm biblically illiterate, that there's so much I don't know, and she said, I just am loving memorizing the Word, I'm loving that I'm having these conversations with people about Jesus, and I'm talking about Jesus all the time. She's a junior at A&M, and, and she's having all these conversations about Jesus all the time. So that makes a dad proud, right? I'm just like, Mm, I'm so excited for her that she's owning her faith. And so that's exciting. But you know what? In the same thought, I'm like, wow, am I living passionately that same way? I mean, I'm a professional Christian. I get paid to love Jesus, okay? And so, um, but, but I think about, man, are my conversations every day, am I so consumed with Jesus that, that I'm wanting to talk about what I'm learning in his word every day? 
that, that I, I find myself just steering every conversation to how good Jesus is? Remember. So first he says, man, remember when you used to love me? But then the other thing that I think he wants them to remember, remember the heights from which you've fallen? Man, remember this. You, the person in your seat, is in need of the same grace and mercy of the people that frustrate you, of the people that you want to call out, of the people that you, uh, if you're being honest, want to judge. We're all in need of the grace and mercy that only Jesus can give. And so maybe you need to retrace your steps this morning and remember the heights from which you've fallen. But not only say it, he says, remember, but he says, repent. Repent. Right? We've heard that in the church, right? And, and here's the thing. We need to define it because I think repentance and confession, we seem to lump those together. Here's the thing. Confession is just telling the truth. Telling the truth about the way things are, right? And so confession, uh, I know as a parent, confession, uh, we love to hear our, our kids say, I'm sorry, right? But the question is always, well, are you sorry you did it or are you sorry you got caught, <laughs> right? Anybody know what I'm talking about? You know, it's like, well, you'll show me that you're repentant if you don't do it again in two days, Right? Because repentance is thinking in a new way about your sin. It's like, oh, this is killing me. This is bringing me death. You know, Jesus in John chapter 1, uh, John says this about him. He says, in him was life, and that life was the light of of men, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can't overcome it. And then a few chapters later, in chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus says, hey, I'm the light of the world. And so Jesus is the light. Here's how I look at it. It is that light bulb that comes on over your head when you have a good idea. Ding! Right? Jesus is the aha of God. Right? The prodigal son he spent all his money on loose living, and now he's in the pigsties wishing that he could eat the food from the pigs. Ding, I should go home. That's a picture of repentance. I don't like the way I'm living anymore. Something needs to change. Remember the heights from which you've fallen. And then he says, repent. Let the aha of God, the light of Jesus shine in those dark places and change the way you think about your sin. And then he says what? Return. Go back. Go back to that place. Um, return. When I thought about return, this is where some of you Baptists are going to be like, woo! It's rededication time, right? I don't know about you. If, 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 you were, if you grew up in the Baptist church, you walk down an aisle during the altar call, during Just As I Am, and you get down there, and there's somebody waiting, right? And they've got the, they've got the card, and they say, what are you doing today, son? And, uh, well, I, uh, are you trusting Jesus as your Savior? No, I've done that. Oh, okay, you're rededicating your life. Check, right? And so then they announce, Greg's coming today and rededicating his life. But, but, but here's what this is about. It's a reconnection, a recommitment. It's a returning to the place that you were before. He says, remember the height from which you've fallen. Repent, meaning you're down here. Turn, think in a new way, and return to the place you were. And then he says, and do the things you did 
at first. Repeat. Repeat those things. Some of you, you don't need to repeat some things. You need to develop some new habits to keep you in intimacy with Jesus. You need to show up every morning in the secret place and sit with your Bible open and just pray and say, God, I want to know you. Will you speak to me this morning? Show me what you want me to know. And have a journal handy. So when you get a thought in your mind and you're like, hmm, I know that's not me, you begin to write it down. And God begins to speak. And you'll know it's God because he'll say, hey, you need to forgive so-and-so. And you're like, what? No, you don't know. Oh, that's God. The aha of God speaks, right? And you develop these habits. And now you've not only returned to this place, but you're repeating some habits that are fostering intimacy in your life. This is kind of like dating versus marriage. How many of you, if you're being honest, would say, you know, guys, well, when I was pursuing my wife, I used to be known as a romantic. And now your wife right now, if she's being honest, she's like, he's anything but romantic, right? And know that sex and romance are two different things, all right? So, so um, you, you're, you're very honest about the fact that, well, my husband used to do things that he no longer does. My wife used to do things that she no longer does. Remember the height from which you follow. Repent. Return to that place and then repeat some habits that are going to keep fostering intimacy in your life. Does that make sense? I mean, Jesus is saying it, not me. It should make sense to you. All right, now, next, the challenge. Here's the challenge. He says, if you don't do these things, I will remove your lampstand from you. What's he saying? He's like, hey, here's the deal. You don't want to follow me? That's fine. I'm just going to remove all of your influence. You will no longer have influence. For some of you, you are living this, this version of what you call Christianity that has everything to do with deeds, dedication, doctrine. And from the outside, you look great. But in reality, you are not living from a center of Jesus. It's just, it, it, it's all a front. And know this, Jesus looked at you and he says, listen, you don't love me, so you need to uh, remember, you need to repent, you need to return, and you need to repeat. And if you refuse to do that, that's cool. I'm just unplugging you. And you will not be effective. So you've got to ask yourself some hard questions. What do I want out of my relationship with Jesus? What, what is my hope? Do I want to change the world or do I just want to look like I'm changing the world in my little context? Do I want a safe life or do I want the adventure that Jesus has called me into? You get to choose that. On December 3rd, 2010, um, the, the day before, I had had to confess something to my wife. She told me she no longer wanted to be married to me. I lost my job, and I was sitting on my bed on that evening, and I was, I was praying. I was begging God for something because I was completely lost. I felt out of control. Earlier in the 2000s, I'd had this moment with, with God where he had called me his David. David, the, 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 the king of Israel, right? He's the second king, the greatest king of Israel, but he's also a worship leader. I was a worship leader at the time, and so I felt very connected. And, and when God called me as David, it felt so good because David was a man after God's heart. It didn't mean I was perfect, but God knew my heart, 
and he knew that my heart was good. And so that night I'm praying and I'm, I'm just really kind of begging God, God, you know my heart, you know. And I said to him, I'm your David. And God immediately spoke back. And you know what he said to me? He said, no, you're Saul. For those of you that don't know, Saul was the first king of Israel, the king that the people wanted, and he was living in compromise, and God came in and said, I am removing your influence from you. I'm taking away your lampstand. And so no, on December 3rd, 2010, what God said to me is, hey, listen, you look good on the outside, you can lead you some worship, and people come and tell you how great you are, that's awesome. Greg, you don't love me. You're Saul, lampstand removed. You want to talk about unnerving. And so know this. I'm telling you this because I love you. That if you got the external trappings of Jesus, but deep down you know that there's compromise in your life, I would take care of that today. And you know who you are, the Holy Spirit right now. Your, your heart's beating 90 miles a minute. And here's the thing. Realistically, anybody with any spiritual intuitiveness, they know. So don't think you're fooling anybody. But here's the thing. Even if nobody knows, there are two people in the room that know the state of your heart. You and Jesus. So right now, some of you are like, okay, it's 102, bro, time to go. Hey, there's not a more important moment than right now for you. This could be the moment for you when everything changes. So he finishes this in verse 7, and he says this, Whoever hears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life when is in the which is in the paradise of God. So here's what's cool about this. To the one who is victorious. So he's been speaking to the church plural, but now I really feel like he's saying, listen, some of you are going to hear this and you're going to reject it and you're going to say, no, I've got this on lockdown. I'm a good person. I, I can do this on my own. So you, you're going to be over here. To the one who is victorious, the one who says, I want to live from a place of Jesus. I want Jesus to change me from the inside out, and I want to begin to live a life that matters. He says to that one, here's what you get. You get to eat from the tree of life. You get to eat from the most choice of fruits. You will get to pick from literally the thing that will give you life. Now, where do we see the tree of life for the first time? Genesis chapter 2, right after creation, right? Adam and Eve, they're frolicking in the garden. It says they were naked and unashamed. How cool is that, right? They're just wandering around. They got no cares in the world. And it says they could eat from any tree of any, any, any fruit of any tree in the garden. But the garden in the center, there were two trees. There was the tree of life that they could eat from, the tree that literally gave them life. Then there was a tree next to it, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Jesus said, or God said, don't eat from that tree. Genesis 3, they eat of the tree. Sin enters the world. And Jesus came to restore what was lost in Eden, right? So this is a picture of restoration. 
It's a picture of, of, of Eden being restored, but it doesn't mean that we go back to Genesis. You know why? We see the tree of life one other place. In Revelation chapter 22, in the last chapter of the, the book of Revelation, the last chapter of the last book of the Bible, we see this beautiful picture of a new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem, this beautiful river flowing down the center of the city. And guess what is in the center of the city? The tree of life. Eden restored. Perfection what he's saying here is, listen, to the victorious ones, to the ones who persevere in me, living from me, there is an end and it's good and you're going to get to eat for eternity from the tree of life. I am going to restore all things. I'm going to make all things new. And no matter what you've done, no matter how many times you have pushed away from Jesus, he says, when you move back toward me, when you remember, when you repent, when you return, when you repeat, know this. You get to eat from the tree of life for the rest of your life, for eternity. Guys, there's a better life to be lived. And here's the thing. We don't have to wait until the end to eat from the tree of life. It's available to you today. You get to receive life, the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit on the vine. Remember Jesus in John 15 says, listen, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you abide in me, if you remain in me, you're going to bear much fruit. The fruit is there for the taking but it's when you are living a life not for Jesus that looks good but it's living a life from Jesus where your deeds your dedication and your doctrine are all propped up by the life of Jesus it's no longer you trying to do things it's about the fact that he's already taken care of it all and you live from the center him. Some of you this morning, there's a height from which you've fallen, and you need to remember that height. And then you need to look at where you are, and you need to look around and see the areas of compromise that are keeping you from the life that Jesus has for you. And you need to practice this thing, repentance, thinking in a new way about your sin. Because do you realize that if you live in that place, that it's going to jade your view of your mission? That you'll begin to convince yourself that things that God has spoken over your life, you've chosen to go in a different direction, and it hasn't been God speaking to you. It's been you convincing yourself that there's a smaller life to be lived. Guys, that's an indictment on the church, right? That we all can get lost. Ephesus, they'd lost their mission. And Jesus came and said, hey guys, there's something greater. To the victorious ones, 